the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, a frank discussion with data about crime, race, and how it all is playing out in the United States. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to Sideline Sanity. Some of you know that I make my home in Minnesota. And so I was front and center with the George Floyd incidents of 2020. And front and center, as our uh, city council in Minneapolis asked to defund the police. And I thought, this is not a good idea. <laughs> I don't know how anyone could think this is a good idea. And I realized what it was born of, but I knew it wasn't a good idea, that it was a knee jerk reaction that was just not rooted in second level, third level thinking. It was something awful happened. Let's do something quick. Well, we've seen some of the fruits of this, not only here in Minnesota, but across the country. And I'm so grateful to our next guest. Rafael Mangual has written the book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, this book just came out. I read it cover to cover. I've seen some really um, authentic praise for it from people who I respect a great deal. And I, I want to just dip into your background a little bit because I think it has something to do with how you approach this whole topic. So when you decided to write this book, and this is an area of expertise for you, for you what about your background sort of informed your direction? Um, I think a couple of things. Uh, you know, one, I think, uh, is just the obvious connection that I've had to law enforcement and that community through my family. My father was an NYPD detective. Um, but also, you know, my personal experiences growing up in a city that saw what is arguably um, the the most uh, incredible transformation that's ever taken place with respect to public safety. I mean, I, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York uh, in the 1980s and 90s and watched, you know, not just Brooklyn, but New York City generally go from the kind of killing field that it was, right? In 1990, we had 2,262 murders and, and, and watched it transform into one of the safest, most desirable, you know, metro areas in the world, not just the country. And it happened over such a short period of time. And so I, I think that experience gave me a really personal appreciation um, for the value of public safety and what it means to an urban economy, what it means to the residents who are living in places. I mean, you know, my family and I, we moved from Brooklyn, New York to Long Island in 1996, um, mostly because my parents were worried about crime. Um, you know, that was that was a major issue. I mean, I remember them actually debating whether or not to get me a particular bike because they didn't want it to become a target. They didn't want me to get robbed for the bike. And so when we moved to Long Island that Christmas, I got my GT Dino and all chrome, which I was so excited about. Um, but, you know, we, we lived at a time which like that was actually a concern. It's like, do we get our son this bike that he wants? Because, you know, that that might, you know, get him robbed or beat up for it. Um, right. And and I also have family. My wife's from the west side of Chicago originally, and so I now have family um, in the city of Chicago on the west side of the city, which is, 
you know, obviously not one of the safest places uh, in the world, very different from the New York I watched, um, you know, blossom in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I think, grown to appreciate the disparate experiences that even people who live in the same city can have. And, and it's by virtue of nothing other than their luck, right? I mean, either you're fortunate enough to have been born into a family that has the means to move into a safe enclave, or you're not. And, um, you know, that sh shouldn't determine what your public safety risk looks like. And, and I wanted to do something that spoke to those concerns because there's so much attention being paid to disparities. Um, but they're all focused on the disparities with respect to the costs of operating a criminal justice system with the costs of policing, but no one pays enough attention to the disparities with respect to victimization, you know, that make day-to-day -day life um, unlivable in some communities. And your book does this. And I think what's so important is you take this, this starting point of, Public safety should be the number one responsibility of government, nationally, locally, statewide, all of it, for everyone in every neighborhood. So that, yeah, if you're fortunate enough to be born into one neighborhood and that's typically a safe neighborhood, that doesn't mean someone born into a less safe neighborhood should be less safe. Right. You you need policing in those areas that tend to be less safe and so that everyone has the same level of of public safety and protection. And I think that's that's the starting ground that instead of looking at it that way, so many people just decide, well, if you're unlucky, you're a victim and, you know, why why is this and, you know, let's lash out at the police for being present in this neighborhood that needs more police instead of really looking at the reality. So it gets it gets very intricate but very interesting and and quite frankly pretty obvious. One of the things that really bothered me recently, as we saw in Los Angeles, that Gascon, the the, um, the district attorney there, did not get recalled as we had hoped. Uh, the guy, Boudin, up in San Francisco did. Gascon did not. Uh, this is really sad news to me because one of the, the things about these kinds of, um, I don't know how to describe it except to say progressive district attorneys is, this push toward decarceration and almost a, a mass decarceration, like people aren't in jail or in prison fairly, therefore let's let them all out. What is the problem with that point of view? I mean, where do I start? I mean, first off, the you know the mass incarceration critique, just framing it that way, the idea that we have a mass incarceration problem. The logical corollary of that framing is that. The solution requires mass decarceration. And so one way to actually test the validity of the claim that we have a mass incarceration problem, that we over-incarcerate en masse, is to ask the question of whether we could safely decarcerate en masse. What would it look like if we released half of all prisoners in the United States? What would it look like if we released you know, 80% of all prisoners in the United States, which is what we would have to release, by the way, if we were uh, to achieve parity with the other Western European democracies that we're often unfavorably compared to on this front. Um, and of course, the answer to that is it, it would not look very good at all. Um, and how do we know this? Well, we can start by just looking at who actually goes to prison in the United States. There is a, there are a couple of narratives actually here, but the, the, the most dominant ones are that we systematically denied second chances, right? We have second chance month in the United States. This is reflective of the idea that our system is sort of taking people at their first contact with the criminal justice system and locking them up and throwing away the key. Um, the second narrative is that a lot of those people who get locked up are locked up for you know petty nonviolent offenses, that these are individuals that don't pose a significant risk to society. Um, so let's start with the second chances uh, argument. The idea that we systematically deny second chances, that's an empirical claim. We can test that. We can look at whether or not that's true just by looking at what the data say. And if you look at the average person getting released from prison in the United States, what it shows is someone who's going to have about 10 prior arrests and about five prior convictions. This does not uh, indicate a, a lack of second chances being given, right? These are people who are receiving multiple chances who continue to make the decision um, to break the law and get caught, Um you know, as a, as a result of those decisions. Um, when you look at who's incarcerated, 
it is not, you know, mostly nonviolent, low-level offenders, right? We, they're very chronic offenders. These are people who are offending at a high rate. We know that because we can look at the statistics that I just mentioned, which are, you know, just the the, the vast criminal histories that a lot of these individuals have racked up before their most recent incarceration. Um, so we know that they're already offending at a high rate. We know that they pose a significant risk to society because we can look at the recidivism data. In the United States, the recidivism rate is about 80 to 83 percent. Right. These are these are people who are going to get rearrested at least once over a 10 year period, 80 to 83 percent of people who get released from prison. On average, those individuals are going to be arrested five times in that 10 year period. Now, when you consider that number in light of the fact that, A, the majority of crimes don't get reported and B, the majority of crimes that get reported don't get solved. What that tells you is that that's actually likely understating the scope of the recidivism problem and understating the, 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 the downside risk that would be involved in a mass decarceration project. So we know that people who get released from prison are very, very likely to reoffend. We know that they have lengthy criminal histories before their most recent incarceration, suggesting that they haven't been denied second chances and that releasing them is not a low-risk proposition. But we also know that the vast majority of people in prison are there for really serious crimes, not the kind right. of petty offenses that people say. Only 14% of state prisoners are incarcerated primarily for a drug offense. I say primarily because that's how our, our statistics get get put into place, right? We look at the offense for which you were convicted that's, that you stand to spend the most time in prison for, that, that has the highest end of, of, of potential time that you can serve. Got it. And so if you're arrested with an illegal firearm and a kilo of cocaine in your trunk, you're going to get more time for the kilo of cocaine. So you're going to be listed primarily as a drug offender, even okay. though you were also a gun offender. And you're going to be listed primarily as a drug offender, even though your criminal history involves violent crimes. Um, and so, you know, the idea that we can sort of pretend that these categories are static is wrong. Criminals don't specialize. Today's drug dealer is tomorrow's murderer is the next day's car thief. Antisocial people will manifest their antisocial uh, tendencies in a multitude of ways, right? There's no such thing as a, a strictly violent offender. Like, I only kill people. I don't litter. I don't yeah. do drugs. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. just, it's just not the case. Like, you know, right. Um, and then, you know, so when you look at the data, you find that more than 60% of state prisoners are there primarily for either a violent offense or a weapons offense. Um, again, only 14% are there for drug offenses. And those 14%, when you look at their post-release recidivism, what you find is more than 75% of them will go on to be rearrested for at least one drug, non-drug crime, I should say. And more than a third of them are going to be rearrested for at least one violent crime. So, you know, again, like it is just simply not the case that you can sustain the claim that we have a mass incarceration problem because we cannot safely decarcerate on mass at least you know uh, not in not in the immediate term it's amazing to me that you said something you s said earlier just stood out the, the so many crimes don't get reported yeah. how yeah. how do we know this well, because we can look at the disparity between victimization surveys, people who say that they've uh, been the victim of a crime. We can look at disparities between um, those surveys and actual crime numbers, the, the, the numbers of crimes that get reported to the FBI. Um, and, and they're pretty significant. We can also look at surveys of prisoners and ask them about their criminal offending patterns. And often they will report having been involved in several more crimes than they were actually arrested uh, for and or convicted of committing. And so, you know, and it, it, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, right? If you are a small shop owner in Seattle or San Francisco, which has just seen uh, a, a just barrage of, of yeah. you know, retail thefts, at some point you go, whatever, he took $10 worth of stuff. I'm not even going to bother. Yeah, um, yeah. Or my car got broken into again. I'm just, you know, going to call Allstate and they'll, you know, fix the window. And it's just, I'm not even going to bother with a police report. Right. And so, you know, that adds up, uh, you know, over time. I, you know, I, I've known individuals who've been robbed, um, you know, which is a violent and felony didn't and didn't it. report it. They said, nah, they took $20. I'm, I'm in a rush, whatever. Yeah. You know what? It. That's, that's very true. And that may seem like petty theft and all the rest, but as you said, sometimes these are entry level crimes that lead to more and more. Right. Um, this is just fascinating to me and you, you detail it so well. When we come back from this quick break, you said there's this narrative about mass incarceration. There's also a narrative around, uh, surrounding racial disparities of this mass incarceration. We're going to get into that next. Rafael Manguel has written this book. It is uh, a fascinating read, and I highly encourage 
people to look at it. Criminal injustice. Back with Raphael after this. Well, since November of last year, the stock market has plummeted, but gold has been on the rise. Meanwhile, gas prices are all over the map. The stock market is volatile. Inflation is worse than it was last year. Heck, it's worse than it's been in 40 years. And we have the war with Russia and Ukraine that is dragging on. The markets don't like instability. But the good news is you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection because gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against a weakening dollar. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I turn to and trust when it comes to investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that's going to protect your wealth and your retirement. Call Legacy Precious Metals today. Be proactive while there's still time. Remember 2008, those who invested in gold saw huge gains while others lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all your options for investing in gold and silver. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals. Here's the number. Grab your pen. 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. Or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. You mentioned people compare incarcerations in the United States to other Western countries. I'm not sure that's a fair comparison. We won't get into that too much. But, uh, you know, you talked about this narrative of mass incarceration and that so many people are in- incarcerated for, for, you know, low-level crimes. You've, you've, dis- you've already disproved that narrative with your data. What about this narrative that the, the vast majority of incarcerated people are people of color? How, how does that stand up to the data? So, you know, it, it, one, it's not the vast majority of people who are incarcerated, um, you know, are, are members of, of minority communities. Um, you know, that's not true. They are overrepresented compared to their share of the general population. Um, and that's what a lot of these sort of claims about, um, you know, racial disparities and in incarceration rest on. The question right. that I think we have to ask is, is, is the general population the right sort of measuring stick against which to determine whether we have an over-incarceration problem with respect to a particular demographic group. And I don't think that that makes very much sense. It makes a lot more sense um, to look at things that might be informing that disparity, such as uh, disparities in criminal victimization uh, along racial lines, which is going to bring more police resources to communities with those same demographic profiles, if that's in fact where crime clusters. And we know that that's the case. So, you know, look at New York City, for example, um, crime and, and really any city in America, crime is very, very hyper concentrated. It's not an evenly distributed problem. So in New York City and in most cities across the country, about three and a half percent of street segments, which is corner to corner, both sidewalks, are going to see about 50% of all violent crime. So, very, very hyper concentrated. Wow. And in wow. New York City, a minimum, a minimum, every single year for which we have data, so this is going back to 2008, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. I can assure the you, the victims, I can assure you that blacks and Hispanics do not constitute 95% of New York City's population. So given just that reality of disparities in victimization, if police are doing the right thing, 
which is to say if they are deploying their resources equitably, those resources are going to be deployed disproportionately to the areas in which these victimizations are happening the most. And because certain demographic groups cluster in those areas, that means police are going to have a, a disparate number of interactions with citizens that fit those demographic profiles. And that is going to show up in the data. So we have to control for that. We also have to control for disparities in crime commission. And I know this makes a lot of people uncomfortable, um, but it is an unfortunate reality, right? So we talked about the disparity in, in victimization. The black homicide victimization rate is about 10 times the white homicide victimization rate in the United States um, uh, for men. That's, that's, that's a really, I think, important thing to latch onto. But also with respect to commission, the black homicide offending rate is about eight times the white homicide offending rate. And so that's going to inform statistics like the incarceration rate for certain demographic groups. And so when, when uh, you know, econometricians have actually tried to assess what the, the real disparity that might be attributable to racism or racial, uh, uh, you know, bias is, it's, it shrinks down to near nothing once you control for the relevant factors that are actually informing um, uh, the incarceration statistics, things like offending rates, things like criminal history, right? I mean, you are going to get more time if you have a lengthy criminal history than someone who's committed the same crime but doesn't have a lengthy criminal history. One would hope, yeah. Right. So <laughs> if the system is doing what it's supposed to do, um, then that in and of itself is already going to produce racial inequities. And so the lack of controls uh, in a lot of these sort of very crude analyses um, explain a big reason for why these disparities um, look so big on paper. But you know that's not the right way to have this conversation. We have right. to control for the things that are relevant. Um, and that's a huge part, I think, of the narrative just about policing and criminal justice in general in this country. It, it really is a narrative about racial justice, about racial injustice, um, as, as I think critics of the system would put it. And so, you know, there's an entire chapter of the book that takes the systemic racism critique on. And, you know, it asks, I think, a, a lot of really fundamental questions that um, I hope will will you know, get people to rethink that framing. Um, you know, one of the questions, you know, that it, beyond just the, the question of actually controlling for relevant factors and what does that do to the disparities that we see, um, what you find is that a historical analysis of a lot of the tough on crime regimes that have been criticized as racially oppressive actually enjoyed a lot of support in the minority community and still do. Right. So, you know, you you opened up our conversation by referring to the defund movement. And, you mm -hmm. know, uh, this was a movement rooted in an idea about racial equity. Right. The, you know, George Floyd's murder was framed as as, you know, a, a racialized killing. Um, but Gallup released a poll last year in 2021 that looked at um, the desire for policing in the black community and found that 81% of black Americans wanted as much, if not more policing than they were currently right. getting. Take the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, for example, which established the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. This is often recast as one of the most racist pieces of drug war legislation that you can imagine, one that uh, you know has been set as at the root of a lot of the racial disparities with respect to um, drug-related incarcerations at the federal level. Um, but when you look at the history of that legislation, what you'll find is that 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus co-sponsored that bill at the time. It passed the Senate by a vote of 97 to 3. Um, so, you know, it was actually, it, it enjoyed wide support, um, not just in America writ large, but specifically among Black representatives in the U.S. Congress. And in 1990, you can go and find the PBS recording of a, of a debate about the drug war, and you can see William F. Buckley, white founder of National Review, debating Charles Rangel, Black congressman from East Harlem, wherein Charles Rangel actually suggests life in prison for certain crack dealers. Um, there's a, also a really great book by a scholar named uh, Michael J. Fortner uh, called Black Silent Majority um, that looks at the history of the Rockefeller drug laws in New York City, which established mandatory minimums um, for uh, crack-related uh, offenses and, and other drug-related offenses. And so, again, he documents a lot of support in the Black community for this. And that was because there was so much violence that attended the drug trade. I mean, that's what's right. really at the root of this. You often hear people ask about the drug war, like, well, you know, uh, we know that whites use certain drugs at the same rates as blacks, and yet blacks are arrested much more often than whites, um, despite that, that, you know, even level of usage or even level of dealing. 
But that assumes that the purpose of the drug wars administration is exclusively to curb use or to curb dealing, when in fact it is often, uh, I think, seen by law enforcement as a way to pretextually attack violent crime, which is why you see drug enforcement disproportionately concentrated in areas that have really serious crime problems, violent right. problems. Um, so that's that's another example. Um, you know, a couple of other things that I think are, are important. One I'll mention briefly, which is this that. The, the systemic racism critique is incongruous with the reform movement and its momentum that it has enjoyed over the last decade plus. You know, if in fact the system were designed and operated specifically to the detriment of low income minority communities, why on earth would we see so many different reforms enacted over the last you know, decade meant to address those very same concerns? A, a racist system does not adjust itself right. to respond to those kinds of critiques. You know, the, so those, those just things are, are, are incongruous um, and, and, and I think really important to, to account for. But, you know, the thing that I think really um, is the linchpin in this argument is that the systemic racism critique is really hyper-focused on one side of the ledger. It is focused, as I mentioned earlier, on disparities and the costs associated with the operation of our justice system. It's focused on disparities in arrests and police uses of force and in, in incarcerations and uh, in pretrial detentions. What it, but it, that pretends that the only output of the criminal justice system are those things. But that's not true. When the criminal justice system works you know, when it achieves its stated ends, as stated by the people at the system's helms, right? Like ask any police chief or, you know, most prosecutors, I won't say every prosecutor, like what is it that, that right. you want to measure your success by? They're going to say crime declines, right? And we know that crime declines are one of the most significant outputs of the operation of the criminal justice system. There's study after study showing that, you know, policing reduces crime, that hotspot policing reduces crime, that incarceration reduces crime. We, we know that for, for every year the average prisoner in the U.S. is incarcerated, we're abating eight index felonies, um, right? So when those crime declines come to pass, we can ask who benefits? And it's not rich white people. Right. No. So I, I quote one study in, in the book that looks at the, the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014 uh, across the United States. And, you know, just again, just to remind people of what happened over roughly that period in New York City, 1990, we had 2,262 murders. 2017, we had 292 murders. So that was our high and low point. Um, and again, remember, 95 percent of our shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. So if you cut shootings by that much, um, it, uh, that's who's going to benefit. Well, nationally, the homicide decline added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man in America. It only added 0.14 years of life expectancy to the average white man in America. This is um, per an analysis done by a criminologist named Patrick Sharkey, who, whose work I, I, I often enjoy, even though we, we probably disagree on a lot of policy questions. But uh, you know, to me, that is just a really, really important thing to focus on because why on earth would a system supposedly designed and operated to oppress the black community so disproportionately benefit the black community when it achieves its stated ends, when it does what right. it says it's meant to do? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. I, it just uh, something else I hope people just heard you say is you enjoyed somebody's work, even though you often disagree with them, him sure. on policy. Yeah. I, we need more of that, ladies and gentlemen. We need more of that. We Being do. able to respect each other, uh, even when you do have policy differences. We're gonna. I got a few more minutes with you after this break. I want to touch on two things. I want to touch on uh, stop and frisk, sure. and I want to touch on this notion of children being separated from their parents mm. when their parents are incarcerated and 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 people saying fatherless homes oh no it's a really interesting point of all of this we'll get back to that in just a second i feel very lucky that i was able to screen uncle tom too i found this movie so compelling I can't even recommend it enough. It unveils the Marxist agenda. Yes, it's a Marxist agenda pushing anger and discontent to overshadow blacks identity with the Christian and American culture that made them so successful in the past. Pre-order Uncle Tom 2 today on SalemNow.com, SalemNow.com. Go do it. You will not regret this. You will want to show everyone in your family, your friends, your kids, Uncle Tom too. go to SalemNow.com. Do it now. 
Raphael, what is Stop and Frisk and why did it end? So uh, Stop and Frisk is, it's a, you know, colloquialism that refers to um, a certain kind of police interaction uh, that is set out in a Supreme Court case called Terry versus Ohio. And the interaction, the nature of the interaction is such that the police have what's called reasonable suspicion uh, to believe that criminal activity is afoot. If they have that, they can briefly detain an individual for the purpose of trying to determine whether a crime has actually occurred or is about to occur. In the course of that interaction, if the police officer develops reasonable suspicion that that individual is armed and poses a threat, they can, in addition to detaining them briefly, pat down the outer part of their clothing to see whether or not they're armed. Um, so that that is a stop and frisk. We often hear those two things, stop and frisk, put together, but it's really more accurately termed stop, question, and then maybe frisk, if okay. you can also develop reasonable suspicion. Uh, you know, that the why did it go away? It seems to me that a lot of people thought that that was very effective in New York City. Yeah, so uh, I, it didn't go away entirely. What we saw was a drastic reduction in the number of stops and frisks reported by the NYPD. And, you know, this was largely a result of litigation. So, you know, litigation is, is a sort of been a central part of the reform movement strategy, um, you know, to try and, and achieve things that they want to achieve, but maybe don't feel confident they can achieve through the political process. Um, and so, you know, the, there was a class action lawsuit filed against the New York City Police Department. Um, the the name plaintiff was was a guy named Floyd, actually, not to be confused with George Floyd. Right. Uh, it was David Floyd was his first name. Um, and and the, the lawsuit claimed that the NYPD was engaged in an unconstitutional Constitutional policy administration with respect to stop and frisk. Among the critiques um, that that informed that case was that there was a disparate uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, there was a disparity with respect to who was stopped along uh, racial lines uh, and where those stops were concentrated, um, and that you know uh, um, was was reflected unconstitutional discrimination. But also there was an argument that police had been incentivized to do bad stops, to stop people without actually having developed reasonable suspicion. Um, and therefore, these you know stops were also in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, now, the NYPD fought the lawsuit at the trial level, and then Mayor de Blasio won his mayoral election um, and, and took office in, in uh I think it was 2013. And um, as a result, uh, he forced the city to drop its appeal of the ruling that the NYPD's practices were, in fact, unconstitutional. I, I think that appeal probably had some merit, much more, uh, yeah, at least enough merit to be heard. Um, now, since then, there's been something like a 90% decline in the number of stops and frisks reported by NYPD officers. This is not something that we necessarily have seen throughout the rest of the country. There have been some jurisdictions where you've seen drastic stops. Chicago is one of them. Uh, Philadelphia is another one. Um, you know, but but the idea uh, must be made clear. And, and, and so the idea of that that lawsuit was that the NYPD's particular administration of a stop and frisk policy was unconstitutional. But stop and frisk remains constitutional. Terry versus Ohio remains good law. Police across the country, including here in New York City, can still detain people they have reasonable suspicion to believe have, have committed a crime. Now, there are a lot of problems with that critique. One of them is that it assumes a rate of 100% accuracy on the part of police officers who were reporting stops prior to the lawsuit, right? Now, the claim was that there was an incentive in place uh, to do stops, including bad stops. Well, if that's true, then there was also an incentive to report as stops interactions that maybe didn't rise to that level. And so the difference between, there are four levels of police interaction here in New York City. You can have a request for information uh, where the person's free to go. You're just asking them a question. You can have a right of inquiry where the person's technically free to go, but you can, you're asking more accusatory kind of questions. And then you have a Terry stop, which the person's not free to go and you're detaining them briefly for the purposes of an investigation. Then you have an arrest which, for which you need probable cause. Now, the difference between a level one and a level two or a level two and a level three or level one and a level three they're not crystal clear, right? I think the NYPD's guidance on this was like two dozen pages or something like okay. that. This is something that really smart lawyers and judges argue with one another about all the time. So why on earth were we assuming a rate of 100% accuracy that every single sure. thing reported as a stop was actually a stop? 
I interviewed a lot of police officers, both on and off the record. And, you know, one of the things that I heard pretty consistently was that they witnessed a lot of stop forms being not necessarily entirely fabricated, but, um, you know, interactions that didn't rise to the level of a stop were being reported as stops. 911 callers were getting written up on a UF-250, which was the form that you had to file to uh, to say that, you know, you had done a stop. Um, so I, I think a lot of those numbers were artificially inflated, and that probably would have affected the analysis. Um, we okay. also know that when the incentive structure was reversed after the case came down and the NYPD was put under the the, the uh, monitorship of a, of a corporate monitor that was court, court appointed, we saw underreporting of stops. Um, so, you know, if in fact those incentives are doing a decent amount of work, I think that the trend line in stops is probably flatter than it might look on paper. Um, okay. So, you know, that was really the critique there. But the question, the right question to ask was from a policy perspective was, was it effective? Did it actually do some good? Um, and a lot of people will harp on the post Floyd litigation crime trends. They'll say, well, you know, stops went through the floor in 2013 and we didn't see crime go back up. And so, and in fact, we saw crime continue to decline through 2018. Um, and it's like, yes, but that's kind of a silly way um, to look at things in part because post, you know, 2013 New York is very different from, you know, 2000 New York. We had in the year 2000, I think 13 precincts seeing more than 20 homicides a year. Um, by 2013, I think there was only one precinct that was, that was seeing that kind of um, crime level. So New York had become less dangerous. Uh, it had been able to fortify itself against crime increases in really important ways that made it less vulnerable to crime increases as a result of, of changes in police policy with respect to stop and frisk. But most importantly, that kind of statistic aggregates crime that isn't experienced in the aggregate. Remember, I mentioned to you in New York City, about three and a half percent of street segments see 50 percent of all violent crime. Right. So you wouldn't expect crime in the other really low crime enclaves to do anything in response to a change in stop and frisk practices. What you want to look right. at are the hot spots where crime would have actually already been a problem. That's where you're going to see and be able to measure the effects. And so this criminologist named David Weisberg did a paper actually looking at crime hotspots in New York City. And, and, and he found that stop and frisk did, in fact, have a significant deterrent effect. Uh, on crime. And, and so, you know, that, that I think is, it's one of those debates in which it desperately calls for nuance to really understand it. And no one's willing to bring nuance to it. Um, you know, that, that, that's such a shame. And we, we need to get past that yeah. first level thinking. And, you know, we do need to, to, to dig into the nuance of these things and people just don't have the patience for it these yeah. days, unless there's some sort of benefit. Um, I, I, there's so much I could talk to you about, but the one really interested me because Tony Dungy, the, the, the hall of fame coach mm -hmm. who, who is happens cool. to be yeah. a friend of mine has talked about fathers being in the home and how a two parent household statistically generates kids who are much less prone to crime, much more successful in the long term in their lives. And those on the other side of the argument like to say, well, what about kids who's, what about, you know, their parents are in jail. What about those kids? You know, they, they can't have a two-parent home because their dad's in jail. Well, if a dad or a mom is in prison, it's likely because they have what you describe as antisocial behavior that has led to a commission of some crime. And so the argument can be made that having that antisocial person in the house could ultimately be worse off. Right for the child rather than to be raised by a grandparent or a single parent. Why don't you give us the nutshell on that? Yeah. I mean, this was one of those chapters that was, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to write because it is a very powerful argument, right? I mean, you know, if, if you're, especially if you're a conservative, right, you, you talk a lot about family structure and the importance of parents in the home. Um, and you probably have lamented developments like the rise in single parenthood and, and you know, have associated that with a host of bad outcomes for children. So it's very easy to make the claim that conservatives are being hypocritical insofar as they lament that single parenthood problem, but also support criminal justice policies that take parents out of the home. Um, and incarcerate them. But implicit in that critique is an idea that the sort of individuals who are likely to find themselves incarcerated would otherwise be reliable sources of economic and emotional support in their homes. Yeah. 
again, that's a question, that's a big assumption. And it's a question that we have some decent evidence for. And it doesn't seem like that assumption is warranted. Um, there's a lot of research that I go through in the book from the, the field of psychology showing that while generally two parents are better than one, when you introduce antisocial behavior into that household, if one of those parents is characterized by antisocial behavior, then in fact, two parents can be worse than just one. The absence of yeah. a pro-social parent is harmful, but compared to the presence of two pro-social parents. But the presence of one antisocial parent is more harmful than the absence of the pro-social parent. And you know that sounds counterintuitive at first, but it actually makes a lot of sense once you no, it, think about it. Yes. And I encourage people to think about it. And when you buy this book, pay special attention to this chapter because it does make all the sense in the world that if you have, a, again, you describe it as an antisocial um, behaving parent in the house, that parent could beat the child, beat the spouse, uh, influence the child in negative directions, bring other antisocial people into the household. There are myriad ways for this to go wrong. Right. And so to suggest that just putting that parent, taking him or her out of the prison and putting them back in the house is the right thing to do for the child. Maybe not. Right. Maybe not. I mean, it's just, it's, and it's, I think these are things that are uncomfortable truths that, that, that people want to tiptoe around, but they have to be said. And so I applaud you in this book for saying some really truthful things that some people might have some discomfort absorbing, but it's so important. It is so important. Before I let you go, Raphael, I want to find out you've done the Trevor Noah show. You've done a, a lot of interviews. You're going to be giving a lot of talks. Yep. Do, do people who you, who might be skeptics at first of what you've written, what are you finding in your interactions with them? I think of Trevor Noah as someone who might be a skeptic. How was, how were you received by him? I, 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 I am happy to say that I was very pleasantly surprised and have been very pleasantly surprised by the share of positive reactions to this book that I've gotten from people who I would expect to react negatively, which, you know, um, is is something I really take pride in. I, I, you know, there was a review of the book that recently came out in National Review, um, written by Andy McCarthy, a, a writer who mm -hmm. I really respect, and I, I was so pleased with the review because it said something that you know captured exactly what I was going for. He says in the review something along the lines of, "This is not a conservative book. It's not a polemic. It is driven by data, and exactly. you know, it's just a, a you know an argument about policy, and it's an argument made in good faith, and that's how I want people to see." this book. It's not a partisan pot shot. You know, this isn't a left versus right. You're not going to see a lot of that in the book. Um, and, and so, you know, you know, Trevor Noah was, was very receptive. I think very respectful. You could tell he had actually read the book, um, and Good. agreed with a decent amount in there, even though, uh, he certainly challenged me on, on a lot of points and, you know, people who have watched that interview and written me since then, you know, I'd say it's been like 70, 30, you know, 70% saying like, hey, I really appreciated this conversation and the nuance and the calm and the lack of, you know, ad hominem, you know, we, we yeah. need more of this. And, you know, of course, there's the 30% just saying shut up and <laughs> sending me hate mail <laughs> and death threats. But, um, oh. you know, that, that that comes with the territory, unfortunately. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But I, I it was Andy McCarthy's review of your book that made me want to have you oh, on. Great. And and I am so Glad we got a chance to talk about this. I'm going to encourage people again to read this book, to go out and get it, because as you said, this is not a liberal or conservative bent on, on this topic. This is a data-driven book, and it, it's really hard to deny any any of it. And I congratulate you on doing the work. This was not easy work, and um, and so congratulations on the outcome. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. Thank you. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave, do good, and buy this book, Criminal Injustice by Rafael Mangual. Well, we always appreciate it when Charles Thorngren can join the, join the podcast and talk a little money and gold in particular with us, gold and silver. And Charles, it's these are mad times. I mean, it's just really wacky. 
And anyone who's watching the stock market is probably asking themselves, what do I do? I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm not, I don't know how to ride this roller coaster with everyone. And so obviously you recommend investing in precious metals. What's the first step that someone should take in learning about what precious metals can do for them? You know, the, the first step, um, give us a call, right? We're, we're going to show you what options there are available. Um, that's what Legacy is about, is showing you options and, and educating everyone. The important thing to know is that we don't invest in gold and silver because it's pretty or because it's it's unique. Those things are true, but we do it because it has the history of being the true diversity for someone's portfolio. It's the insurance policy against everyone's retirement and their uh, their savings. So, so this is why we look at, at gold and silver specifically. It's the currency that was always meant to be, right? It's not a fiat currency. There's no um, inflationary effect on it. Gold and silver are going to be worth what they're worth. The thing that changes with everything is the amount of dollars it takes to buy that gold and silver and the amount of dollars you get for owning that gold and silver. That's the big key. And this is what people don't understand about it typically is that it is not the stock market and it is not the dollar. It's an investment that is counter to both of those. So it gives you true diversity and balance is what everyone's looking for right now. They just don't know it as inflation gets higher this is where gold and silver come in. Someone is saying, okay, I want to do this, but I want to choose one or the other. When they call you and ask you these questions, when would you recommend gold and when would you recommend silver? You know, that's a great question. What a lot of people wind up doing is actually doing a little of both because that's possible, right? But it's going to depend on your specific investment parameters. And that's one of the things we're going to do that we're, we're different from your typical stockbroker because we're not going to say, this is what all my customers are doing. Because that's not what's important. What's important is what matters to you and your portfolio. When is your retirement coming up? What are you looking to accomplish, right? What are your risks? What are, what are, your, what are your safety features that you need? So there's a lot that goes into it. And what we do here is, is talk with you, right? Our, our big thing is to educate you so that you understand why you're doing it as well as in what form and fashion, because that's important. It is important. And I think, too, that people, people probably think uh, I'm a small investor. This is not for me. I can't I can't afford to do this. I can't afford to do this at a level that will benefit me to them. You would say what? Um, I don't think you can afford not to. If you have money saved and you're not flush with cash, it's more important than ever for you to make sure that you put yourself in a protective situation, right? You have less to lose, so you should not lose it. It's really, you know, it's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's about how much protection you need. And if you don't have a very large portfolio, then you probably need it more than the guy who does because you can't afford that loss. And look at what the market's done over the course of the year. We are talking about a situation where the loss is extravagant and it's not done yet. This is why we look at uh, precious metals to counter that. And lastly, Charles, for those who fear that a recession may already be here or is coming, what do you tell them about how in a recession this investment helps out? Great question. A couple answers there. We are in a recession, um, but the reality is it's not going to get bad for a few more months. Then it's really going to be bad. What we see happen next year is going to be devastating. Just think 2007, 2008, right? The troubles with 2008 happened in 2007. It just took time for it to hit the market in a real sense. And this is what we see. You know, we have inflationary numbers that rival the 80s. Um, That's something that's going to be dramatic. So when we look at this, we say, why do we want to do it? And that's exactly why. It helps because it's not the dollar and it's not the stock market, right? This is the safe haven investment. And if you look at long-term wisdom, that's what metals do. They give you a place to store your wealth without the effects 
of inflation, right? Inflation is good for your metals. The stock market correcting is good for your metals. Uh, a weak economy is better for your metals. So that's what it's meant to do. And that's why it has its place in the economy. We're talking about a worst case scenario right now, but even under the best of terms, the government tells you two to 3% inflation is a good thing. And at two or 3%, it doesn't sound bad, right? But over the course of your retirement and your lifetime investing, if you go 40 years, you've lost over 120% of value of your dollar by not having metals. So even in the best of times, there should be some in your portfolio. And during the worst, you really want to make sure you get a hold of somebody who can explain why and show you what options you have. Yeah, that's why we love to recommend Legacy Precious Metals on our show, Sideline Sanity. So the website is LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You can also go to the website and find the phone number to call, learn a whole lot more. It's just worth asking some questions, right? A quick phone call and getting more information about everyone's specific situation. Absolutely. We're a no-pressure organization. Everyone who contacts us, they reach out to us. We share information. If it's right for you, great. If it's not, that's great too. Learning something never hurt anybody. No, that is true. And we're <laughs> glad we had you on to learn something from you today, Charles Th Thorngren. Again, it's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Please go check them out. Just ask some questions. Learn a little something. Thank you so much, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 